Podcast world, what's up? Chad Belling back at you. Another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. Another exciting episode in relations to the 2020-2021 wildfowl gear issue. What I've referred to many times as the Bible of duck hunters, the Bible of goose hunters, what we depend on to see everything new coming out for the season, get our blood flow and get us through these dog days of summers. It's 95 here today and I'm on a podcast instead of in the water. My guest today lives on the water. We are just having kind of an argument about how easy walleye are to catch that they don't fight but they're a lot of fun and they're the best eating fish in the continental united states you've heard me say that here before when i was talking to t-bone or waddell or somebody i feel feel that walleye is the best tasting fish in the continental united states fresh water you cannot put halibut in that same one because they're saltwater fish fred zinc would you agree with that I would agree with that, hundred percent, hundred percent. Now, 100%. that's why I live. I live on the shore of Lake Erie for a reason, there, big boy. Yeah, and uh, the um, the other guest here is from Colorado, born in Texas. Skip Knowles. You guys have heard him here at the podcast of the Wildfowl series already. Skip, do you enjoy a good walleye meal? And if so, do you like them black them? Do you like them flash fried, or do you like a deep fry Wisconsin style, Minnesota style fish fry? I'm a snob from the Seattle area. I'm, I'm, I'm with the halibut and salmon crowd, big time. Um, <laughs> I actually developed, proof that God hates me, I, I developed a fish allergy at age 22, but I can still eat crabs and clams and everything else. But oh. Oh, I miss a big curly batch of fried crappie fillets so much. Does a walleye have to be deep fried, Fred Zink? No, uh-uh. I cook mine on the grill. In fo- of, actually. In, in foil or do you gr- just put it right on the grill? No, I put foil down. Put butter down, put the filet down, butter them, season them, put Parmesan on top, crust them, bam, or killer. Any lemon juice? Oh, uh, yeah. Put, I, I switch it up. Lemon juice. Uh, I got some uh, seasoning called Slap Your Mama's type oh. of deal. It's a little Cajun seasoning type thing. Yeah. Put that on there, Parmesan, and some real butter on top. Melt it in the parm. It's killer, man. So if you had your choice, are you eating, your surfing turf would be a beef ribeye and a walleye, or are you going steak and lobster with the filet mignon and a big old Maine lobster tail? No, I'm going to be Midwestern on you. Midwestern. Ribeye and walleye, yep. Oh, that sounds so good right now. Like real good. Yeah, when I was with you at NWTF, you said you were on this big beef kick, and I've been eating a ton of elk. I know Skip said that a little bit ago, but I probably eat elk five days a week and some kind of waterfowl the other two days of the week. But walleye, like we don't have it out here. We don't have very many good eating fish. Some people will eat the trout out here. I'm kind of close to the coast of San Francisco in the Bay Area, but we don't have a lot of really good edible fish fisheries out here and i mean that like you can go to colorado and that's a little bit to the north but mainly east of here and there's a lot of good walleye there there's walleye in lake mcconaughey in nebraska but there other than that you get to wisconsin you get to minnesota where freddie lives up in port clinton that's like the walleye capital of the world the dakotas are awesome for walleye and then when you start talking to people you got the crappie you got the perch then you got the redfish in louisiana would those be in your top four freddie are probably the most edible fish freshwater fish i don't know if i think a, a redfish is in brackish saltwater as well isn't it yeah to be honest with you i'm not much on the redfish personally redfish yeah the crappie and the bluegill especially through the ice cold weather cold water makes some a a majority of all fish uh very good especially fresh water so like uh ice fishing the fish are probably 20 30 percent better tasting they're more mild uh their meat's a little stiffer and really really good to eat saltwater fish i like uh you know i like my mahi dolphin um 
there's a lot of good rockfish. Like when you go to the uh, northeast, you know, up around Maryland and that area, a good rockfish is hard to beat. Black rockfish. Is, stri- is that a striper? Yeah, striper. Really bass, good. Striper. Really good. Really, really good. Freddie, if we if we get through COVID, Fred Zink, and we get the these Canadian borders open up, you're probably the most prolific American to make a career in Canada in the last 25 years when it comes to ducks and geese. You made it you made it famous. You gained a ton of credibility with the content you were able to collect up there. Mainly, I would guess in the in the in the province of Saskatchewan. I know you've been Manitoba, you've been Ontario, you've been Alberta, but mainly Saskatchewan. Fair to say? That would be fair to say. I've been I've been to every one of them basically almost i even hunted in a yukon before so for waterfowl for waterfowl so if i'm going up there and the 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 borders open and i'm i'm new to canada but i got my new enclosed trailer how many full body goose decoys do i have to have in that trailer is there such thing as a successful hunt on the canadian prairie with two dozen or do you have to have 25 dozen Canada goose full bodies to be successful, assuming you can get on the X once or twice in your trip up there? Well, I think it comes down to if you're hunting lessers or you're hunting honkers. You know what I mean? If you're hunting lessers, you better have a pretty good pile of decoys. You know, you better have at least 100, if not two, 300 of them. That's simply just the game they play, right? But if you're hunting bush honkers, you know, uh, fields of 50, 75, 100, 150 honkers, and you don't need that many. You know, I, I've seen good success up there with less than a dozen decoys if you're on the X and can hide. Uh, those big bush honkers, a lot of people go up there and they don't know. And they set 150, 200 full bodies out. And then those geese are uh, pretty wise to that. Uh, they're pretty solitary. So, you know, if you're going for honkers, Ontario is really good. Quebec's really good. Alberta is really good. Saskatchewan, yeah, you can shoot some honkers, but it's mainly a uh, lesser a Providence, uh, especially as you go west, uh, and then even in Alberta, on the eastern side of Alberta, it's a lot of specks, snows, and lesser. So you got to pick, you got to know your area. You know, if you're hunting honkers, you don't need that much, bottom line. So with all of your years of hunting honkers in the Ohio's, the Michigan's, the Minnesota's, all over that part of America, Colorado, I know you've been everywhere, the Dakota's. Is that why you choose Saskatchewan is because you got addicted to the lesser form of Canada geese? Well, I've hunt, I, everywhere I go, I hunt honkers. And so as I got up there and hunting lessers, it was something r- really unique. I started, I think I killed my first honker when I was, I would say about 11 or 12 years old, something like that. Most people that's been in waterfowl in the you know, last five years, 10 years, 15, and maybe even 20 years uh, in the past 20 years, uh, most of them don't realize that back prior to that, uh, there was not that many Canada geese in the United States to hunt. You'd have to be in certain areas, Southern Illinois, Maryland, Delaware, um, parts of Colorado, uh, Montana. But outside of that, like Ohio, Kentucky, uh, some Tennessee areas, the Southern states, uh, there wasn't a good local population of honkers, you know, and now they're everywhere. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of local honkers and that's really changed the landscape. Um, but going back, getting a full circle, what we're talking about here is I grew up and uh, I, I was fortunate enough to be a part of that craze. You know what I mean? Um, I remember the first field of honkers I seen, I was probably, I would say probably 14 years old, something like that. It was like the first field I ever seen with honkers in, in Ohio. They just, and then, and then I started chasing them, you know? So I cut my teeth chasing, uh, chasing honkers and figuring that game out. And, uh, there wasn't a lot of people around the state of Ohio where I grew up that knew anything about them because they were 
born. You know what I mean? They just weren't around. And so, uh, best way to learn is, you know, get out there and get it done. Learn from mistakes. And one thing that I learned from you traveling as much as I got to very fortunate and humbled to be able to do it, you know, with what I got to do with you all over Canada and America, but you taught me that there is a such thing as going to Canada. And I want to stay on this Canada kick for a minute, just in case it happens, because I think there's a lot to be said about how much you can learn up there and hone your skills in on decoy spreads, different patterns, scouting. You, you, you were the best at scouting, getting on those roads, having four or five rigs. You were very fortunate to be able to do what you did. You had a lot of boots on the ground, a lot of people that believed in the brands, but you taught me the value. But one thing that you taught me up there is that you can go up there and hunt water. And I don't think that for the most part, Americans that are Americans that are booking to hunts with waterfowl outfitters in the Canadian provinces get to experience much water hunting. Now you can tell me if that's fair to say when you start, but when we would do it, it was like a science to you. You were so deliberate in your approach of the sneak of getting close enough to hear the chatter. How many mallards are on there? Are there Canada's using it? What's the high? What's the depth of the water? One of the main things you always would look at is what's the depth of the water? Are our decoy rigs even long enough for it? Do we have to reactivate and get them longer? What's our hide going to be like? Are we going to be standing in buck brush? Are we going to be able to build a blind? What, why were you so keen on that water part of the hunt? Do you just love killing waterfowl over water more than anything? Because usually when you go to Canada, you really don't point, you know, pinpoint that type of hunt. Well, a lot of people don't, don't believe in hunting water. I mean, especially guides and outfitters in Canada, very, very few Canadians hunt the water. You know, it's kind of a, something that just don't do. And I get that. Uh, but we don't hunt we hunt the water, but we never hunt the roost. And there's a difference between that. We would never hunt a roost because a roost in the area, you can blow the whole area up. You know what I mean? And so they could be three or four groups of people hunting around the roost and they can all have good hunting every day. As long as those geese or ducks are allowed to go back to the roost. We always were looking for day roosts, and that's a little bit different because they're not 50,000 or 20,000. They might only be a few hundred, but we would only hunt, uh, in most cases, Chad, when we were up there hunting, we were hunting ponds or small willow sloughs in the field that they were feeding in. And what was happening is it was just a watering spot. They would hit the field, come get water, go back to the field. And uh, you're not blowing anything up. Um, the main thing I was looking for is making sure that that's what it was and not a full-fledged roost, you know. Um, and so just trying to figure that out. And I think the most important part is all the things you alluded to. Number one, uh, what kind of ducks are in there? Number two, very, very important. Can you hide? What's it going to take to hide? Third thing is where is that little magic X on that water? It's, you don't want to go in there. If you're going in there with your buddies, no big deal. You're going in there with cameras. You can't be 40 feet too far to the left or too far to the right. You got to be in the exact right spot to make good TV or good film. And those attentions to detail of all the years, I know you've been filming a long, long time as well now. Um, those, that attention to detail will make you a much better hunter when the cameras aren't there. You know what I mean? Because it was so much pressure that to get a complete TV show and to understand and make sure the birds are laying right in front of the camera and everything was good. So every little detail that we were looking at was so important and just takes things to the next level versus, you know, three or four of your buddies rolling in there. And if you can shoot them at 30 yards over your head or 30 yards to the right, it's still fun. It's still a great duck hunt. Go there with cameras that can't happen. So it just takes everything 
the next stage. So our theme today, Fred Zink, is decoys. You have become, and you know, I don't think it's any secret what you meant to the decoy game from your greenhead gear days with Avery to Avian X. The the posturing, the texturing, the anatomically correct bird, the shelf appeal of what Fred Zink brought to the decoy game with the different carvers, yourself and other carvers like John, brought to the market, brought to the retailer, brought to the shelf, brought to the end consumer. What when you're when you start talking about what you just said, Fred Zink, about those cameras and getting those birds right out in front of you to where that viewer can live through you vicariously? Because in reality, that's what's going on. These guys are watching Fred Zink going, Man, I could just picture myself being in that blind with Freddie and the boys. What what is so what is important about a decoy spread, Fred? I want you to lay it out. Why? What are we replicating? Do you go in there and just do a horseshoe? Can you just go in there and throw your decoys wherever you want? Can you it doesn't matter what brand you are. I know that we're talking about Avian X right now, but why? Because in decoying and what you were doing with those cameras, it was everything to get those birds right. Were you using the decoys as part of that to get them in that position for the cameras to be on them all the time? Well, 100%. You got yeah, have the right location and on the X, but then the decoys communicate, uh, birds can only communicate two ways, verbally or by their posture. And, and so calling is what we do, obviously, to make the sounds like ducks and geese or whatever, uh, and that's the verbal situation. But the posture in a decoy and how a decoy spread is set is so important as above and beyond uh, uh, what most people would think or even think about. And in order to get the birds to land in the exact location in the field or on the water, you have to communicate with your decoys to those birds. So those postures, whether it be a feeding decoy, a sleeper decoy, a head up decoy, a century, a walker, it sounds like a bunch of marketing, but it's, I spent a lot of time, um, I spent more time learning from the birds that I did from a person. I guess I would say that, um, whether it be my calling, uh, back in the day was like competing in calling contests. I used to go and watch birds for hours and hours and hours from daylight till dark. I'd be right in the middle of them, listening to them, watching them. And I started to understand uh, their personalities and their language and body language and what everything meant to the birds coming in. And, you know, years and years and days and days on end of doing this, I started to figure out, you know, how ducks and geese think and how you can communicate with them, not only through your calling. I always thought a decoy was a decoy. You put them out in a U and X, make sure you got a hole and you're down the road. But when you start filming, uh, you have to do things, take things to the next level and you have to get them to a certain spot. So I started paying a lot of attention to postures and, and decoys and the decoys that I was buying in those days, looking at them going, it's just not what you need. You know what I mean? It was, they were goose like, but they weren't exact postures. Number one, uh, anatomically they weren't, wasn't correct, um, but they weren't saying anything. They were just a decoy. Um, the, the green head gear, we started uh, doing a lot of things with green head gear back in the day of actually learning about postures, actually making a decoy that actually meant something to the bird. It probably means more to the bird than most hunters that buy them and th that don't know this, but each one of those postures that we carved or made and now with Avian X means something like tools. And it's like a tools for a carpenter. You can't build a house with just a hammer and you can't build a good decoy spread with just a hammer. You got to have all kinds of different postures. And then once you have them, you got to know how to use them and you got to be able to communicate to the birds in the air 
where the food is and where the food is not. And that's the most important part about getting geese to land on the X is letting them know where the food is and more importantly, where the food is not. And if you can do that and understand that, you'll be way more successful. So all of my years of watching you set a decoy spread and listen to you talk in seminars and when we were on the road, hotel room or in the truck or whatever, you always talked about, and this was in the days when you also played a huge role in the um, the, the evolution of the ground blind. You know, you took it from the latch on final approach days and you just started coming out with some amazing designs to hide, which now it's kind of evolved into more of a panel blind deal now. And I don't even know how many people are hunting out of ground blinds. It'd be interesting to see that study, but I would almost bet as a betting man that that the sales aren't what they used to be. Um, but you always stressed around the blinds. You might have a looker here and a looker there, you know, watching the birds in the air and watching for predators and stuff. But that was where you were going to concentrate the head down feeder type walking feeder or just the head straight down resting feeder that that's where the food source was. So as the birds approach the field, they're coming into that field, maybe the X, maybe not, but you use a flag to get their attention that there's live stuff going on over here, whether it's backflapping of other geese landing of a goose posturing up and getting a goose away from his food. But once they got closer, you always said that the birds were walking to the food source, you know, your family groups outside of it. And then around your hide was the food. And that's where you wanted to get those birds to hop over the, is it, do Canada geese hop like a snow goose wheel or a mallard duck wheel? Are they going to fly past and land past the walkers to get to the feeders? Is that, am I remembering that right of what you used to talk about with, and what you're touching on as far as showing where the food is? Yeah, it depends on the duck or the goose, the subspecies. A mallard duck will tend to land just upwind or in the food source as they approach. And I'm not talking about in a decoy spread. I'm talking about ducks landing with live ducks and geese landing with live geese. I'm talking about in nature. Ducks will tend to land exactly where the food is or just upwind of it. As you always see, the ducks are always rolling and flying up over the top, rolling across the field. Very, very aggressive. Those ducks will come and land in front because they know that's where the food's at. That. Lessers will land typically right in the food. Snows are much like lessers. They tend to land at the front of the decoy spread or more close to it uh, because they're very aggressive at, at feeding. Uh, a honker will land about five or 10 yards shy of the food source and walk in. That's just how, what they do. Um, and so when you're setting up different decoy spreads for different subspecies, you got to understand that because it's going to totally change things. I remember the first time um, that I hunted lessers, I set up a honker rig because I didn't know any better. And they were landing behind us, you know, coming over a blind 20 yards high and actually landed probably 15 or 20 yards upwind because we were so used to setting a honker spread, it just didn't work, you know. So after watching and figuring things out and spending, as you were there on a lot of it, spending hours and hours and hours watching them, uh, we'd always do decoy tests in the afternoon. So in Canada, uh, you can only hunt till one o'clock uh, the first half of the season. And after about October 10th or 12th, depends on the year, you can, and Saskatchewan, you can hunt all day. So we'd hunt in the morning, as you well know, we'd scout at night, but I would always go set a decoy rig in a field and do decoy strategy or testing that evening and watch uh, as I was uh, scouting as well, see how the geese are coming in, flocked versus non-flocked, all the different things. Cause you're talking about, you know, back in the day when a lot of things were just the modern decoy today was developed about 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and a lot of those tests um, kind of persuaded the way we were making decoys, flocking, no flocking, what color, how dark, how light, positioning, movement. You know, a movement is a, a huge key. 
Um, back in the day, a majority of all full bodies were on foot bases where they did not move. Well, the only time Canada geese do not move, there's two, two things, two ways that Canada geese and ducks, snows, all of them communicate danger. Number one is they go from calling to shut up and not a pen drop and they all quit moving. They all go from feeding to all heads up and no movement. And so those decoy spreads back in the day was fine because it wasn't as much hunting pressure back in those days as they are today. And people say, what are you talking about? There was way more duck hunters and goose hunters back then. You're right. But they didn't hunt nowhere near as much, you know. Um, You've seen it in Canada. You know, it went from we would have 10 options a night to – uh, maybe having one and seeing 20, 30 trucks on the road, sometimes 40 trucks on the road, scouting from outfitters and and, and freelancers. So that game has changed. So a, a decoy spread that all of them have the possibility of moving a little bit is key on success from back in the day to today, you know, but uh, understanding the geese and understanding how to set that decoy spread up is very, very crucial on how you're going to set that thing up in the mornings. So let's start with Skip now and what he does for a living, Fred, and how how many years you've worked with Skip. It's a long time. I don't know exactly, but you've been you've always been very creative with your print ad campaigns, with your marketing campaigns. Maybe I don't know if it was you or Foils, but probably the best of all time in that game. You for sure in decoys. Foils was right there in the marketing of his call company. But you guys were very creative in your approach when it went to Wildfowl. An in-consumer opens this gear issue, Fred Zink, and he's reading through it, and he gets to the decoy section. It's got seven or eight different manufacturers. Then his next step is either a catalog, online, or in-store experience to buy and make his purchase of decoys. X has been very influential and very successful. There's other companies that you were part of. Greenhead Gear is still very influential, more so now than it was probably five years ago. Educate us, Fred Zink, and, and, and talk with Skip about what do you tell somebody that's getting into this game? It's so hard, Freddie. There's so many decisions. There's so much to learn. This is why people like you are so important for somebody to learn something, to just get a little bit of knowledge. And I think a lot of times that you and I can maybe even take that for granted of how much people look at for information and how crucial instruction is. Let's talk about instruction on buying decoys. What does this consumer need to look for? What are the, the benefits of a certain decoy? Let's start with Mallard floaters, and then let's move into Canada full bodies. Let's stick with that Canada theme that they're getting ready to go up there. What do I need for a Mallard floater rig to be successful? I think the most important uh, Mallard, especially for floaters, is uh, back in the day, the, uh, all decoy all decoys had their heads up, every one of them. In most cases, there was only two postures in a dozen. You know, they had a hen and a drake, and they were all high heads. But if you sneak in on a marsh, um, and I'm talking about knee-deep water or shallower, or it's got vegetation where they're feeding, and you go in there where, uh, and the ducks are not disturbed, and you're sitting there just watching ducks do what they do, I would say less, in most cases, less than 10% of the ducks have their heads up. They all have, they're all tip butt up, tip down, surface feeders. They all have their head on the waters. They're there for a reason. They're there to feed, you know. Uh, if you get in the open water situation uh, where they're resting or sleeping on open water, that's a little bit different. They all have tucked heads or sleepers, a few uh, kind of high heads. But, you know, back in the day, a majority of all decoys were high-headed when it comes to mallards, you know. And once we started 
getting in there. I love photography. So I'd go in there and sit for hours as well and just photograph ducks, learn them, uh, listen to them call, start to understand a lot of things. And it didn't take that long for me to figure out. It's like, wow, when a duck sees a duck decoy spread, it's a wonder that we can kill anything because it's so different than what real ducks are on the water. So that's when we started doing a lot of the surface feeders for greenhead gear um, and started changing that game. I personally would buy surface feeders. Uh, if I was hunting in a marsh condition most of the time, I would say at least 80 to 90% of my decoys would be heads down, surface feeding, doing something like that. And the other ones would be heads up. And I, I seen it at my own duck club. Uh, I have a club that's about 20 minutes from here. Uh, it's not really a club. It's my private place that uh, my friends and I go and hunt. And I spent a lot of time out there. When I started making those decoys, what I found was, um, I would leave some of them out and I'd watch high heads. I watched ducks land in them. They would sit there for a minute, 30 seconds, a minute, a couple minutes, and they get up, fly a little bit and land again. They, they wouldn't stay in the decoys very long. When I started running surface feeders and started doing that testing, they would land in the decoys and not leave. They start feeding, swim into the, 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 uh, the buckwheat or the, the corn or the marsh grass or, whatever we had planted and they would not be nervous. Um, it was just a totally different feeling. So once we started experimenting and seeing that we started switching our decoy spreads over to majority of that. And it really changed the difference. I mean, it's, it's a difference between a duck seeing a normal decoy spread or duck seeing a decoy spread that actually looks like live ducks that they land in and not get shot at. It's a different scenario. And, and so I hope that helps, but I would no, it does. Heads down. And if you're if you're on the open water, I would buy tucked heads and I would buy sleepers. Keep a good rule of thumb. And this goes for honkers. Uh, this goes for all, all waterfowl. Um, the posture uh, is typically one of two things. Number one, it's, uh, it's done. They're either feeding or they're not feeding. And it's either warm or cold. If it's cold, ducks are going to have a uh, tucked head. They're going to be sleeping. They're going to have a high back. They're going to have a low tail. They're going to have a certain posture. Um, I've seen 5,000 honkers on a pond when it was 10 degrees, and every one of them looked the same. Um, a lot of times, it has to do with the temperature. Uh, when I was doing the carving for green headgear and a lot of photography, I could almost drive up on a pond, look at the pond, at the waterfowl, and tell you within three or four degrees how cold it was simply by looking at the birds. Wow. That's, that's how it's related to so that same consumers at the store that day and they run into you in the aisle that you just happen to be there checking out some merchandising at one of your dealers and they say, Hey, Zinc, you mind telling me what species I should get? Is this all dependent on region area state that you hunt in Fred Zinc or can a widgeon, a cotton top or a sprig or even a canvas back, can that white illusion add to the success of a mallard spread? Do you put coot floaters in a mallard spread to replicate realism of a marsh? How important is mixing up your species to, to replicate that live marsh? It's, it's very, very important. I do the same thing when the calling at the same time, when I get late season where I live here in Ohio, um, most people would say Ohio, I don't think that should be a good duck hunt spot. I don't hear a lot about it, but right here where I live, I'm sitting in my office right now within a, I would say about a 60 mile radius of where I'm sitting in November between Lake Sinclair, uh, all the way down, uh, Eastern Michigan, right here in Ohio, this given corridor, I bet there's about half a million ducks 
sitting right in this area. Just a tremendous amount. And but we don't live in a migration area. And what I mean by that is I don't hunt on a river to where the ducks I'm seeing coming down the river or sometimes up the river are actually migrating. Totally different scenario. I live in a staging area. The ducks come here, stay here for a long period of time, and their next move is not 10 miles. Their next move is Kentucky or Tennessee, depends on the weather, okay? Or the Ohio River or something like that. So these ducks get very smart, very, very quick. And so to your point, I think one other thing, there's two things important. There's a lot of them, but two things important to waterfowl hunting is number one is you have to be realistic and that's where you're calling. That's where your decoy spread. So uh, when you're looking out there, having a variety of other decoys in that spread is very important in my opinion to match your area. Like here in Ohio, uh, early in the year, I'm going to have wood ducks out and I'm going to have mallards out and I'm going to have a few black ducks out. Later in the year, I'm going to have a lot more black ducks out. I'm going to have mallards out. I'm going to have pintails um, where I hunt at my place. Now, if I go to public marsh and hunt, now I'm going to have my widgeon. I'll have uh, other things out. Um, if I know I'm going to be hunting widgeon, uh, cans, uh, redheads, things like that, then I'll put the I'll put widgeon and the divers out, and I'll put a bunch of coots out because that's extremely natural. They eat the same food, uh, and that's very important to understand. What do ducks eat? So you have a different species of ducks. What do they eat? Well, if they eat the same thing, you commonly find them together. That's very, very important. And to circle back around on my calling, late season, I just don't, and I'm hunting mallards. I just don't blow my mallard call. I'll blow a widgeon whistle at them. I'll, I'll do some teal calling. I'll do some pintail calling. Not a lot, but I'll mix it in there because why? Most people, when they see mallards, just blow their mallard call. And we live in an area where, to be honest with you, about everybody's a duck hunter. Tremendous amount of pressure. And I'm not trying to sound like the guy next door. I'm trying to sound like what they hear in the refuge or in an area where they don't get shot. Be so as natural you, as possible. So you leave that duck aisle and you walk around the corner and Skip Knowles is in the Canada Goose Isle. And he tells you, I'm getting ready to go on a Canada Goose Hunt and we're targeting lessers and big ones there's going to be a mixture of both an opportunity for both maybe it's next to regina somewhere in that area what does a consumer look for in a full body goose decoy spread and is it the same mindset of the posturing are geese the same way when they're in the field when you touched on the getting really quiet do ducks get do they get quiet like a duck will i've seen canada geese just go stiff like statues uh predators in the field airplane whatever it is what what is Skip and his party got to look for when they're getting ready to purchase their full body goose spread? Well, I think if you're going to have if you're going to be hunting lessers and honkers, um, you may be going to do it. Maybe you live out in the Central Flyway where that's going to happen. You're going to Canada. Um, we sell a tremendous amount of lesser decoys to people that tip, typically hunt honkers. Uh, they don't take up a lot of space. Um, they're easy to carry. There's just a lot of upside to that. Now, if you're 100% hunting honkers all the time, that's one thing, but a lesser spread is pretty versatile. And I don't think, I, I know a goose is pretty smart, but I'll be honest with you. I don't think they're smart enough to say, Hey, that's a lesser Canada goose. Uh, I'm not going to land next to him if I'm a honker. I don't, I don't really see that happening. Um, so I would probably point him in the direction of buying a, a good set of, uh, and concentrate on buying some lesser Canada goose full bodies. Easy to carry lightweight, very versatile and they don't take up much space if you're putting them in a trailer to go to Canada, which is very, very important. 
Being a pioneer in this space, and Skip and I have had this conversation, I want Skip to talk to you about this topic. You were of the days of the outlaws, the outlaw decoy company out west. Uh, the final approach is, then there was real geese and Daryl Wise, and you used to see his print ads and his, D, his, his VHS. Is, <laughs> I'm not aging us at all, but we used to watch a thing called the VHS, so if anybody needs to Google that, or call Freddie. He's, he's a little bit, he, he knows him a lot more than yeah, I do. Yeah, uh, I got some age on you. <laughs> Do silhouette decoys work, Fred Zink, for Canada geese? Do you have to mix them with full bodies? And if they do work, why don't you use them more, being as good of a goose hunter as you are? Have you ever used them when you were guiding? And what would you tell that consumer today? Would you mix some in with the ease of carry, the ease of use, the ease of packaging and containment? What, what, what's your feelings on a silhouette spread? Silhouette spread is extremely effective. Um, and I used them my since I've been a kid, to be honest with you. Um, when I was young, that's all I could afford. And then uh, Jim Cripe and the Outlaws come along, and then the Real Geese. Actually, the Real Geese decoys are made about 25 miles from right here in this location. Um, I know the guy that owns it, but they were making them uh, for uh, the Daryl and the guys back in the day. So I would say a silhouette decoy, the, the best part about a silhouette decoy, and I've, I've seen it, I never understood it until one day, is I would say geese in general are more attractive to a silhouette decoy than any decoy. They're more wow. attractive. They're kind of like uh, in a tackle box or like a spinner bait. Okay. Um, they make a lot, they just are very attracted uh, because they look like they move the illusion of movement. What I mean by that is you can't see it. Now you can. Okay. And so that is how a silhouette is so attractive. They created uh, movement when decoys didn't move. Back in the day, not, no decoys other than, say, like a Northwinds windsock would move. You know, all of them were stationary shell decoys, full bodies, what have you. Where the silhouette appears, disappears. As a bird flies by, um, that's very, very important. So when I set my silhouette spread, I set up for that purpose. And what I mean by that is, I typically set two of them together. I set one this way and I set one this way. All right. Now, if you think about it, if you were flying by or driving by, you will see this decoy, but not this decoy. And as you drive by, this decoy will disappear and this one appears. It looked like it moved. Okay. And that's very, very effective. The first time I seen it, uh, I was running a, a, a guide service here in Ohio and I had a bunch of, uh, there were outlaws. I had it on the edge of a pond, gravel pit. And the geese had not returned back. We were hunting a uh, a day roost, and it was getting to the point of the day where I think they, I thought they got up and flew someplace else and didn't come to the day roost that I thought they would come. So I got in the truck and drove down the road, and I looked over and I I can remember it like it was yesterday. I was like, I finally understand. I drove by at fifty mile an hour down the road, and I could see it looked like they were doing this. It looked like they were moving. I was like. Now I understand why silhouettes are so effective. So with that being said, is the reason why I don't primarily hunt with silhouettes is um, geese figure them out. And what I mean by that is we call it getting skinny. When they get over the top, they're coming, 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 and they, yeah, something's not right. That happens when they get hunted a lot with silhouettes. Now, if they're not getting hunted with silhouettes, they get, if you're just hunting, the other reason, if you're just hunting, plenty close enough to shoot lots of times. But when you're filming, no good. You know what I mean? And we were in the film game. We won them back flapping. 
Uh, the best way to do it is to mix them. And I think you get the best of both worlds. You have the ability to create that movement. You have the ability to uh, create a large spread with a lot less money. Uh, but I still like full bodies to get them to back flap and land right at them. You know, um, the other thing about thinking about this is, and this is something I used to do in the nineties when foils guided for me back in the day, I had a guide service and foils was one was my, my guide. And we would always start with the least amount of quality as possible. And what I mean by that is we could go the first day and shoot them over two dozen shell decoys from the seventies, we would do that. And we would continue to do that until the geese started getting wise to that. And then we would start adding maybe silhouettes in there, just hunting with silhouettes. And we'd hunt till they got wise to that. And we'd bring out some full bodies. We continue to move as the geese did, but we didn't want to go out there with our very best decoys day one, show them our, everything that we had. And then once they get edge K, we didn't have nowhere to go. So it's a little bit now, most people don't have to do that, but when you're hunting every day and you're hunting the same geese every day, you have to do that. I know, I mean, Foles and I talk about it. We had one place, had 300 geese on it. It was one, it was a pond. She didn't allow anybody to hunt, which is perfect, right? Um, in 10 days, we killed 175 of those 300 geese, okay? Um, and so it's because, but we never hunted where they fed. We would always hunt in between. The places that I least were day roost or feed fields, and we would never hunt them there. We would try to hunt in between and run traffic. And when you're running traffic, silhouettes are a big part of the game. Because of the numbers? Numbers and or the attractiveness. And the attractiveness. Pulling geese from a distance. Very you, were, you were also part of the revolution of Randy Bartz and the flag game and the flagman company and brand. You took flagging to a different level on many occasions. A lot of Tim's videos took flagging with the extended pool, the kites, the different number of flags on an actual pool. In your opinion, Fred Zink, is a flag considered a decoy or is it just an accessory? And how important is it to the success of a Canada goose hunter in 2020? I, back in the day, I would say the same thing today, but back in the day, I would say I'd rather leave my shotgun in my, in my truck instead of my flag i would freak out because a flag uh, would get you geese that you normally wouldn't get okay uh, now you gotta know how to use it and i always said i would never when they first came out just like a ground blind just like full bodies just like a mojo when they first come out they were very effective because canada geese never seen them before ducks never seen them before and but that eventually wears out to where they see them all the time. And I seen it where if you pulled a T flag up and shook it up high and showed them the profile, you might as well be waving an orange flag. I seen them where they got so spooky to that because every decoy spread had the same thing going on, um, oversaturated that, uh, that's the time where you just use the tip of it. Or I always said, once that started happening, I would never raise a flag any higher than the backs of the decoys around me which the, the key to confusing them and is to show them just enough, but never at all of it. That's the same way with Colin, same way with uh, your, your spread, the flagging or whatever, because most people are going to take that flag and stick it up in the air, like 99% of the people. So 99% of the time, geese are getting shot with this. After a while, this doesn't work anymore. So if you're the different group of people that just show just a little bit of movement here and there, 
way more effective and you'll be way more consistent. Um, you just can't continue to do and be successful going out and doing the same thing everyone else does. So back in the day, I used to drive around and this is no slam at Bigfoot's because the Bigfoot decoy was in its time, the most revolution decoy, revolutionary decoy ever made. Durable, uh, goose-like, not 100% like a goose posture-wise, but better than anything prior to had ever been made. Very, very durable, very easy to use. I owned as many as 700 of them at one time myself, personally. And But it didn't take long for that fad to catch on. And I remember driving around and seeing Bigfoots in the back of everybody's pickup truck. And our success rate went down extremely fast because they were just, they knew what they were. They didn't move. They weren't exactly this, the right posture. Uh, and it was, everybody had them. And so that's when outlaw kind of come out and we started using outlaws and our success rate went up because we had something different. And then I actually started uh, doing my own taxidermy and I started mounting my own decoys. Uh, and that was a game changer as well. And I just remember if you had one or 400 Bigfoots out in the field, you weren't going to kill them. Not close. It just wasn't going to happen. So because, it, because they were being overused, everybody had them. So in 2020, if it's used properly, your flagging techniques are kind of like calling. You don't just go out there and do it and go through the motions. There's there's a talent to be in the flagger in the group. Like if you're in Fred Zink's hunt crew and you're given that responsibility of being the flagger, you better take it serious because that's a big responsibility. You're part of the hunt team right now, right? You have a job to do, but you're saying that it can still be effective in 2020 or it's played its role out. No, that can be a very, very effective. You just got to watch how you use them. And how smart the geese are, you know, if you're in an area where it's September one and the geese have not been shot a lot and things like that, that's one thing. But if you get around an area, I don't care if you're in Canada, you and you've seen it with me, you're in Canada and you're like, Oh my God, this is the easiest hunting in the world. Not always, man. If you get in an area where there's a, a bunch of outfitters in that area and those geese are getting shot day after day after day, they can be just as smart in Canada as they would be in Kansas in January. I mean, it's just the facts. Not always, but man, I seen it where hunting in Canada was, I couldn't wait and get the truck and go home. You know, it was just tough. The birds were stale. They'd been there for a while. A lot of people had shot at them and the party was over. I've been there. Freddie, with all of the duck lodges and duck camps and outfitters that you've been humble, humbled enough to be a part of in your life, you help market them. You help build some businesses. You're one of the most uh, Grant Kuypers at Buck Paradise Outfitters will tell anybody until he's blue in the face how much you brought to their revenue stream at Buck Paradise. He had deer hunting, but Fred Zink made goose and goose hunting famous in that part of Saskatchewan through your videos and your media outlets. When you go into a, a lodge, Fred Zink, if you go into a camp, does it lose instant credibility with you if they don't have wildfowl magazine sitting out on the coffee tables or in the bathroom oh 100 lots of times i won't even go back you won't you know even go I mean? back right you know what i mean it's like how can you be a player and not do that you know what right I mean? you know what, but i'm being for real it's the true deal right it's like yeah. you have to have that if you're going to be taken serious that's right you gotta have it so be like being a rapper with no spinners what was the what's the best <laughs> what was the best experience or story that you can think of off the top of your head right now of a feel of a of media hunt skip Knowles or or bill buckley or md johnson or some of these contributors do you have one that that, that rivals uh you know one of your f favorite hunts of all time do you have a good memory being in the blind with a, a wildfowl 
representative? A lot of them. I think um, I still like the the, the field of 10,000 where you dug those craters. That's, that was a media hunt. That was when ducks were limited. Not a wild fowl deal, but man, it was freaking. You dug like, I thought there was oil coming out. You dug. Chad, Chad was involved. He was responsible for digging the ground blinds down because back in the day, I'll be honest with you, uh, ground blinds started being not, they weren't effective. If they shadowed, they wouldn't finish. So Chad was in charge of digging. I was setting the decoys. I come back and Chad had dug five holes that a backhoe couldn't have dug in three hours. And he did it in about 15 minutes, but they were <laughs> so deep. You put the ground blinds in, you couldn't see out of the hole, man. That was probably, that's that was a good guy. And MD Johnson, that was on another one. MD Johnson, we were in a willow slough and perfect light. It's just one of those days where it was nonstop. We were doing an article for Wildfowl. And we were in a small Willis Slough, and it was one of those days that you could literally kill 300 green heads. It was just sunny, southwest wind, 45 degrees, and they were just coming from the heavens, you know. And it's just a lot of memories like that. I got hundreds of memories like that. And just really, really uh, fortunate to be able to do what I did when I did it and and meet a lot of people like yourself and and people from all over the uh, United States and Canada, as you well know. Uh, um, many of the Canadian people are just great people. And, uh, to be honest with you, they're, they're awesome people in most cases. And, uh, to be able to share that, meet friends, but the memories are probably more important than all of it. Just remembering how fun we had, how much fun we had, but there's nothing like looking up in the sky and seeing them just peel right down in your decoy spread. And that's the best part of the hunt for me. I like to shoot them. Uh, I like to eat them. I would have to say, I do a lot of things. I got a lot of hobbies, probably way too many hobbies. Um, and I get sick of about all of them every once in a while if you do them too much. But uh, hunting mallards in the sunshine, oh. the southwest wind. Over water? Uh, does, it, does this count? It's possible for me to ever go, no, I don't want to go tomorrow. I just, I never, I've never felt sorry for them. I love them. And it's it's the best hunting in the world. I think. Does that include dry field too, Freddie, or water mainly? Do I know? Is that water mainly, or does that include dry field corn or peas with a blue I'd sky? I'd hunt mallards on the on the water. Always. Corn field hunting is pretty cool. It's awesome. It's just a totally different uh, experience. I think waterfowl, hence the name water. I think traditional hunting uh, is water. I mean, back in the day, if you look back at the old. You know, you can go back and look at the old decoys. I mean, from a long, long time ago, they're all water decoys. You know, I mean, that's the dogs and having a water dog and the, and the whole deal. I think that the true waterfowl hunt, in my opinion, is done on the water. It's just my opinion of what it is. Field hunting's awesome, but there's so many elements um, when you get, you know, from the boat ride, launching the boat, picking your spot and doing everything and having your dog work in and it's just i don't know skip do you agree skip Knowles, do you agree with what fred zinc just said oh i grew up hunting on the water and there's absolutely no contest when you hunt in a field you don't even need to know how to call you don't need a dog you don't need waders and all those things that are part of it the boat ride out if you're lucky enough to hunt in an area where you need a boat is is one of the biggest thrills of all and no there's no comparison whatsoever yeah and I, and I love it I, in Colorado, especially like north of Denver, we do a lot of late season, beautiful mallards in the sun sort of hunts. And, and, and I love it. And especially when there's a little bit of snow and you land some a little too far out and they're running around flashing their green heads in the snow. It's just incredible in the sunshine. 
it's, it's a wonderful experience. I'm not putting it down or disparaging it, but when it comes to water hunting, it's, it's waterfowl hunting 100%. And I hope there's not a schism between the groups ever for real, but it's not because there is no comparison for a lot of people. I talked to Tony Vandemore about this subject. He's like, no, there's absolutely no comparison. He goes, not so many of our clients are jet setters. He goes, but we still, they don't even know that we have places you can field hunt because we try not to do that because it's not what the sport is about. Mostly it's about dogs leaping into the water, you know, skip from, from let's say the last 20 years from 2000 to present, when did you learn about who Fred Zink was? How did you learn about it? What was the first time you ever met him? Was there a mystique? Did he come across the way that you thought he would from what you heard about him to when you met him personally? And has he always lived up to the hype as one of the leading voices and pioneers of where waterfowl hunting is today as far as equipment and the advancement of decoys and, and gear technology goes? Cracks me up because I was sitting here listening the first half of this podcast, all I wanted to do was um, curse that I hadn't started typing from the beginning and taking notes because I'd have a hell of a feature story. That part about posturing, that whole series about how the early decoys didn't look like anything but dead birds to the those decoys didn't say anything. What a great quote. He goes, I looked around at my decoys and they didn't say anything to the birds. But to answer your question, every time his mouth, mouth moves, pretty much I'm learning something and it just cracks me up. I can't think of anybody who I learned quite as much from so quickly. And it's, a, it's a reminder to talk to him a lot more. But to your, to your question, the first time I met him, um, we were in a, I think Cabela's event, a big uh, um, gathering of, it was a celebration of the waterfowl season. I can't remember where that was. I think it was on the shore of Michigan or something. It was like eight years ago. Um, and I was annoyed by the, the sound of everyone trying to show Fred Zink how loud they could call indoors on a concrete floor. And it was just like, and then I walked over and Fred was holding a seminar. He was holding church and it was packed. People were standing in there. And I'm like, what's the big deal? I mean, come on. We all know how to goose hunt. You, you go, you find the actually find where the food is. And, and that's, and he started talking about how, Yes, the X is critical and the food is critical, but you have to think outside that. You have to think like a goose and think about where they have experienced danger before. And he goes, recently, because of the last 10-year craze and layout blinds, they're kind of leery of the middle of the field and the layout blind is losing its effectiveness and we're starting to hunt edges again. And I just got so excited listening to him and learning so much so quickly, not to just think about where geese eat, but to think about um, where they're scared to go. And yeah. I hope that answers your question about when I met him and did he live up to the hype? Um, Freddie, is there, is there any, I want you to talk about this thing you told me one time in Holly Grove, Arkansas, and you had the audacity to tell me this. And I still don't know if you were messing with me because you did that a lot, but you, you said we were sitting there and I don't know if there was a writer with us or there was somebody in the industry with us. And I, I usually have a pretty good memory, but we've experienced so much the last 20 years, but you said that you had done a study or somebody that you knew had done a study on a refuge of the way that these corn kernels were disappearing and not disappearing on these feed piles for Canada geese. And that you're the main thesis or hypothesis that came out of this study was that ducks and geese can smell 
the human scent and the, the hands that touched that corn was the corn that was not eaten because it was tainted by human scent. And did that tell you that geese and ducks could smell? And if so, are some of the ones that flare off of our decoy spreads or our hide or our terrible calling, is it because they're really picking us apart with their nostrils and we need to shower more? Can ducks and geese smell like an elk downwind of you or a whitetail? Well, there's been, there's a lot of people that say they can't. Uh, I'm not one of those people. So I'm not a scientist, but I've just had too many different things like time and time and time again that uh, lets me believe that, uh, that they can smell. Uh, there, there's something there uh, because, I mean, I've seen a pick cornfield uh, that just got picked. They ain't been a duck in the area for 30 days. Field gets picked. Within a day or two, 5,000 mallards there. I just don't think that happens by mistake. Um, how I discovered it the first time, and I couldn't believe my eyes, but I've seen it time and time again once I started paying attention, is I would uh, I was able to get uh, get a pass on an area that was a private farm. had thousands of geese. And I would go there, and that was back in the day before basically really good, high-quality digital sound uh Recorder. I had a little cassette tape recorder and I bought like 150, 200 feet of, of cable. I had a little microphone. And what I would do is I was recording geese because I was in, that was in the early nineties, mid early nineties, cause I was competing in calling contests and I just would sit there for hours and listen to them. I'd record them and I would hear because geese are, man, they're the best musicians in the world. And they got such great rhythm and the way they call back and forth, a male and a female together and things. There were some certain things that, really hadn't been duplicated quote unquote on stage before. And so I'd record that, listen to it, break it down and try to duplicate that on stage, try to put some more realism in, in my calling contest routine. And by doing so I would feed them. I'd take corn out there. And what I found was I seen it a lot of times. If I went out there in the morning, walked out there and spread the corn and put the microphone on the geese would come in and land, look around for a little bit and get up and fly away they would not eat the corn. It's kind of stupid, but it's true. I mean, it's not something I seen one time. I mean, I'm talking about like day after day after day. Now, if I did it the day before and then put my mic in there that morning, they would come in and eat it. But something about it, they, they just knew something was not quite right. I seen Field Hudno can speak to this, him and I snuck into a Willow Slough in Saskatchewan, and it was freaking loaded, like 10,000 plus in a small Willow Slough. And they were coming in at dark, and we were sitting on this stump, and, I mean, we were in the buck brush. Like, you couldn't – like, we were hid. And they were coming in right at dark, and there were so many coming in there that the water was black. And you couldn't see your hand in front of your face, and we're just sitting in there listening to them. It was awesome. But the ducks would get within five or ten yards of us. You could hear them swimming and calling, and they get up and fly away. Get up and fly away. They would not get around us. I remember one time down at the Avery Camp at Casco, Tyndall's Reservoir. We're sitting in there. It was Clay Huddle, Field Huddle, and myself. We went out there. It was the day before uh, opening day in Arkansas. We went down there to brush blind. Well, we got in there, was brushing blinds, and in the morning, there was no ducks there because they were all out in the rice fields. Well, they came back, started coming back, and we kind of got trapped, to be honest with you. It was just cool. There were 40,000, 50,000 mallards come back into that reservoir that day, and we were sitting there, and that great big member, 
uh, been the North line. North Remember line. the big V line? Okay. Yep. We're yep. sitting there, not even looking at the top. We're literally looking out the dog holes. And there were 40,000 ducks around us. But you know where they weren't? Right by the blind because they would swim up close. They get up and fly away. They knew we were in that blind. Warren Coco told me a long, long time ago, and, and I will believe it on this particular duck. He told me he was hunting with an old Indian guide, French Indian guide down there, and they had these gadwall coming in, and they would come down this as pretty as a picture, come right in, get real close, or you know, just out of gun range and just go straight up. And he kept looking, and the Indian guide, the old Indian, was doing this right here, like they're smelling us. And you've seen it. How many times we've been at Tyndall's or we down at Stimson's Lake and the old gadwall in the north when not pressured, dumb decoys really well. But man, when they get oh. down and get pressured, the first circle's 50, the second circle's 70, 100 go away. 10 minutes later, they come back, do the same thing. Uh, I don't know, but I think they're creatures that uh, people say they can't smell. I don't believe it. I think they can. I really do. I personally believe it. I had too many things that just didn't make any sense that said, eh, they might not smell real good, but I think they can smell. What about turkeys? <laughs> I don't think a turkey can smell. <laughs> they can see. They say, they, if they, see. they say that if they could smell, you'd never kill one. Yeah, because, I mean, we've all had them walk over. I mean, literally stand on our foot, walk over our foot before, you know what I mean? A duck, you know, go try it. If you think, go, uh, uh, Phil Robinson told me the same thing. He said, buddy, I'm telling you, guaranteed that smell. He said, I was in Oklahoma laying on the backside of a log, and these mallards were coming in, and they were landing and land and, and swim around for a couple minutes and get up and fly away. And he said, there's no way they could see us, but they knew we were there. So when you put Phil Robinson and Warren Coco uh, and myself in a conversation, we all think one thing. I ain't saying we're 100% accurate, but I bet we're pretty damn accurate. Somehow, some way, they know something. Let's take it full circle to end this, Fred Zink. The effectiveness of a decoy spread in a province of Canada. Canadian waterfowl season opens around the 1st of September of every year. Hopefully it does this year for non-residents and Americans again. Decoy spread with or without a spinner. You're going to get mallards the decoy at the early morning hours. You put a spinner out, you're going to smoke them. You will literally, I mean, they've just never seen it. There's a lot of young ducks coming in there. Turn it off with your remote. Canada geese work in there. Is there anything wrong in Fred Zink's opinion of that September season for Americans to go in and enjoy the majesty of ducks and geese over a spinner when you potentially could be killing eight hens a day? Could that mess up the biological process and breeding process of the duck population? In In your mind today, being you in the game as long as you have and has seen as many ducks hit the dirt and water as you have, is there anything wrong with Americans going up there in early September and in having a blast in the field and high five? And even though they could be potentially hurting the overall population and breeding process of the, of the ducks. Well, I say, I, I say there's no problem with that. So whatsoever. I mean, it, as long as it's legal, you should be able to do it. Number one, you know, I, I can't say here and go, Oh yeah, you shouldn't be doing that. It's just not my place. As long as it's legal, I think you should be able to, to do it. Um, you're right. There's a, People that would look at that and go, you know, it's just not right. I'm, I live here in Louisiana or I live here in Ohio or wherever. And I just don't agree with that. But the amount of birds that actually get killed in Canada are very, very small compared to many, many states. Number one, there's just not the hunters. Uh, the non-resident hunters 
uh, shoot way more than a majority of uh, our more than the locals. There's just not that much hunting pressure. It's such a short window of opportunity there uh, that it's just not really changing the population. And if it did, you got to understand, in most cases, the waterfowl that we hunt are at all-time high during the period of spinners. So if that was the case, we'd be at an all-time low, and we're not. So does it shoot? Does it kill a lot more ducks? Yes, it does. A spinner is extremely effective, especially on juvenile birds. Late in the year, down south, not very effective. I mean, you still have some success with them as long as you hide them, know what to do with them. Uh, depends on the area. Uh, sometimes you can't even use them, but most of the time, if you're pretty smart about how you use them, they're still effective. Uh, they are a extremely an effective tool. Um, I would say out of everything, and I talk about this and I totally agree with it, um, it's probably when it comes to duck hunting, the most revolutionary thing that's came along and the last 20 years so with that being with that being said and all the input that you've had in the decoy game the call game you've helped design camo patterns you've helped design apparel you've helped have input on shotguns ammunition patterning choke tubes fred zinc has done it all for ducks and geese you've hunted with ruben perez and tried to figure out how to stay in a skull boat and not get thrown out of it when divers are working your 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 lines is there anything in the back of your head at this stage of your career fred zinc that you wish and you just mentioned one that I could assume you might, but does anything irk you or piss you off that you didn't invent or that you didn't have a hand in or that you didn't like come up with that idea and been like, that's, that's part of the Fred Zink mystique of, of that. But is there anything that you wish you would have done that you didn't get in on? Not really. I mean, the spinning wing deal co- uh, decoy from a financial standpoint at the very beginning, obviously that was a huge hitter. I mean, there's been a lot of money. It's a very effective, it was patented, uh, I seen it. I remember. <laughs> I remember the first time they released it. It was uh, back in the day. It was a shot show. I think it would have been uh, two thousand or two thousand one. Ninety two four ninety. It was in the nineties. I think. I think ninety nine or two thousand one. Probably ninety nine or two thousand. Um, and it was the two guys from California um, that had them. You know, Matthews, they had yep. Lambo. Yeah. And grounds. He went over to the booth and he come back and get, hey, bub. You got to go see this deal. And he was telling me about everything, you know, and I went over and looked at it and he said, man, they got video of this ducks just piling into it. I went over there and went, I don't see that working. <laughs> I thought I was like, ah, I think it's a bunch of BS. And man, I, to be honest with you, probably had never been more wrong about something. Um, never really. It, it didn't take long to figure out that I, that I didn't know what I was talking about because uh, uh, I bought one uh that following year and man it was like well there was places there were places that weren't duck clubs there were goose clubs that bought them and, and went from killing 50 ducks a year to killing four or five hundred ducks a year you know what i mean because they just i just remember the first time putting one out go, looking up going what's going on here it was just like bees at a beehive you know that was back in the day uh where they never seen it before that was be honest with you, it was a perfect timing because it was when layout blinds came. There's a lot of new things, you know, that change things. Lay down blinds uh, could be arguably right there with a spinner because they were so effective, uh, allow people to get out and hunt, comfortable, stay warm, able to take their kids hunting because they could stay warm instead of laying in a snow cover field or whatever. So a, a ground blind was probably maybe even a close second, but 
just a really, really cool product. And uh, obviously, uh, then Mojo come up with theirs and they bought the patents from the other guys. And, you know, the rest is history. And uh, but a, a product that really changed the whole landscape of duck hunting for sure. No, hot, no hot seat. Best competition duck caller of all time. Main Street, Arkansas style. Go. Uh, John Stevens. Best competition goose caller on the stage with that just killer instinct that you would hate to face, even though you were never intimidated by anybody. Go. Uh, Hunter Grounds, as far as true talent. The one that I like the most, as far as true sound, this goes back to the gay day, was uh, uh, Alan McCree. Alan just, McCree. Uh, ta- uh, Hunter's got unbelievable amount of talent, just like crazy good. Alan just had this sound that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, man. It just sounded like, I was like, oh my God. If you only got to eat one more duck recipe, go. I like uh, duck poppers, mallards. Mallard poppers. Oh boy. If you had one. Three to four days a week, big boy. Adam, baby, with your, with your ribeyes. If you had one more drive around with Tim Grounds, what would be the next question you asked Tim? Who's buying the beer? <laughs> and last, I buy the Miller Lights. Last but not least, Fred Zink on the hot seat. The last question: What is the best all-around lab you've ever hunted with that you did not own? Uh, man, that's pretty tough. Okay, let me change it. Which one would you have wanted to own? Personality, disposition, and pure talent. Would it have been yellow? No, I like, uh, I'm trying to think of what Aiken's dog was. What's Slick? Aiken? Slick? No, no, no. no. He's old Not dog. Slick. Um, Just a great personality. God dang, I can't think of his name. Didn't you have a puppy out of him? No, I didn't. I didn't. God, I know exactly who you're talking about. I can't about. remember the dog's name. Personality-wise, he was a killer. He's just a good, good dog, man. I don't know if I can. I don't. I can't think of it either. I don't know if I can end it on that one. I got. I got to ask you one more question. Is will Canada goose calling and duck calling ever be as relevant as it was from '98 to 2008? No. No. Just because of the internet. The internet, um, so many people can do it now. Uh, it's lost its mystique from the standpoint of everybody can do it. Back in the day, it was almost like people would show up just like they would be blown away. You know what I mean? They were blown away because they never heard anything like that. Now with the internet and digital media and be able to go on YouTube and find out how to do it and practice and hear somebody do it and duplicate, it's so much easier. It's just like it's uh, – which is great, great for the sport, but it will never – what it was my opinion and it's not as effective as it used to be either in the field because everybody can do it just remember that's that's the whole thing is back in the day i swear to god uh you we we could go to the walmart parking lot and it could be geese fly by and we could start blowing our goose calls and they would turn and come over and circle around the parking lot that was in the 90s now you're in a field it's got 500 decoys everything you blow your call and they fly over you're like you're invisible some days different landscape different time because they hear a lot change everything up if your phone rang this fall and skip said hey will you come to california with belding and i to hunt specs 10 birds per man per day would you consider it or are you such a homebody now that you're not leaving that lake or your duck property look depends on time of year <laughs> what time's the best uh i would not leave this area in november okay then we can do it skip. we're gonna call freddie and get him out there 
Yeah. Beginning of December, I'll be a little bit hard to catch, but uh, mid-December through January, I got my fly card. I'm ready to roll. You hear that, Skip? Yeah. yeah. That's the one and only Fred Zink, the Foul Life Podcast, Wild Foul hey, Gear hey, Issue. Aiken's name, a uh, dog's name, Boomer. Boomer, Boomer. Bam. Good job. Great, great dog. Personality wise, too. You, know I mean, just, yeah. I love Aiken. He's coming on here next week. Is he? Yeah, I'm going to have to text you and get some questions for him. <laughs> he's awesome. Uh, he's a good, he's a great dog. I got all my dogs, uh, my last three dogs have come from Aiken, you know, at one of his litters or whatever. Just, I like that style. Uh, me being more of a duck hunter these days because I really, really like to eat them. Uh, I, I eat on smaller dogs, number one. They're easier to get in the boat. They don't take as much water. They're fast, and they last a long time. A lot of my other dogs are big, you know, 95 to 100 pounds, and they get – if you if they're a true gun dog, they get eight years old. They can barely move, you know. Barely move. Yeah, but, you know, these, these young, small, athletic dogs um, got a lot longer shelf life. Fun to watch. I agree with that. That's Fred Zink, Skip Knowles, Wildfowl, Gear Issue 2020-2021, Duck Season, Goose Season. Good luck to everybody. You should have your copy in your mailbox right now. You should find it on your newsstands right now. Skip, good job putting it together. I'm excited about it. You'll find all information you need on AvianX and Zink calls within those pages of the Duck and Goose Hunters Bible. Wildfowl, Gear Issue. Chad Belding, the Fowl Life Podcast. Fred Zink, thank you very much. Any closing words? No, man, I just appreciate the opportunity. Anytime we can get together and talk about waterfowl hunting. I think the coolest part about what we've all been able to be a part of is making sure that we're leaving the sport better than what we found it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. uh, There's been a lot of good memories of ours. And I'll tell you this, when I looked down those stairs at Whiskey Bend on Broadway in February at the Brent Cobb concert we had and saw you walking up with Don and Grant Kuypers, and I was just like, man, the freaking stories that could have been told in that room, just of our Canadian experiences. I'd l- I just love seeing it. Grant coming down here and hanging and us being on Broadway and then the lifestyle, the culture is so special. And like you, m- you go your separate ways. We become competitors, but there's always that underlying respect that I have for you and what you taught me. And I try to do the best that I can to tell people what your friendship meant to me. You came out here for my dad's funeral. I mean, you showed me how dedicated you were. You never doubted me when I went out, you supported me when we went out and here we are you know, a few years later and I'm doing my thing, you're doing yours. You're fishing a lot more than I am, but I could still smoke you in freestyle rapping, guaranteed, if you ever want to throw it <laughs> yeah. in. You can smoke me in the great beard category too, buddy. <laughs> Ow, man, now he's a comedian. We're going to go down that road. All uh, right, I'll give I you that one. I see that coming in there, big boy. Oh, look at that. It's too much too. But I said, I asked my friends, I said, should I get that stuff you can call men? I know, I said, should I get that just for men? They're like, no, you look good, bud. And I'm like, I'm going to believe what you said. Isn't that just the, ain't that the just for men is what you put on your hair that made it all fall out? <laughs> You'll never go back to that way. Oh man, he's coming at me, Skip. He doesn't understand the power of editing and that I can take all of this part out. <laughs> That's right. This is called the reverse widget when you get the, the cotton bottom right there. The right, right, I got you. Skip, oh, I got you. Skip Knowles, do you have any closing words for Fred Zink? No, I just um, I feel like we live in a blessed time for wa- for waterfowl hunting, even though some things are harder and more expensive and, and so forth. I, I really, we would just stomp the heck out of the, the hunkers um, in Southern Colorado on February 16th. And I, every time we shot, turkeys were rattling off. And like Fred said, if someone shot a honker 20 years ago, it made the news. So uh, I just want to focus on the positive and, and like he said, try and leave it better for the, the future and the people and my kids. 
Yes, sir. That's what Wildfowls do, and that's what AvianX Zinc calls. Find them all, all over social media, their websites. Look for Freddy's Brands and the new edition of the gear issue of Wildfowl Magazine. Huge mentor to me, one of my greatest friends in the industry. Freddy Zinc, thank you very much. Tell Don and both of the kids hello. Your son's, what, seven or eight inches taller than you now? pretty close <laughs> it's amazing he's got three inches in height and three inches of hair so he looks like he's like seven foot tall he's got, <laughs> he's big. that's awesome man he's that's big. fred zinc this is chad bailing thank you all so much for joining us on another episode of the foul eye podcast again that's the wild foul magazine gear issue 2021 and we are so excited for the season to get here let's get through these dog days of summer stay home stay safe support your community support the blue line support the military tell a soldier thank you when you see him in public God bless everybody. Peace out. This is Chad Belling. Thank you, Fred Zink. Thank you, Skip Moles. We go.